Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We're going to be starting and try to go through this book. I'm going to have to do it a little bit different because of the story nature of it. Uh, we won't be able to go phrase by phrase as we normally do, but we'll try to cover, cover all of it. The song we just sing, sang says, God is for you. Why is that so hard for some people to believe? It is often easier for you, if you struggle with this, believing God is for you, it's often easier for you to believe that God's favor is on somebody else than it is for you to believe that his favor is on you. And so the reason for that is you have a higher spiritual esteem of somebody else than you do yourself. But the reason God is for anybody is not because of anybody except Jesus. So the worst person here and the best person here only has God for them because of Jesus. So uh, I'm going to call you out today. If you're here doubting whether God is for you, that's a problem with your view of Jesus. It's not a problem with your view of you. We all know I'm no good. You can say amen right there. <laughs> I know it and you know it. And, and, and you know that about yourself. But Jesus died so that his father would be for you. And that's kind of what Esther is about. Esther is a story. It's told like a story. It's one of two books in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. I struggled with that when I first started studying it before getting ready to preach through it and uh, I found there's another book in the Bible that doesn't mention God, and that's the Song of Solomon. But I believe the reason that Esther doesn't mention the name of God is because it was written during the time of post-captivity, but they were still in the land of Persia. And if it had been written in such a way to include the name of God, there would have been a lot of attempts to destroy this book. And God preserved it, I think, one of the ways was by his name not being in it. Even though his name was not in it, he's all in it. And he's doing a great work. And so today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of skim over chapter 1 real quickly. And then I'm going to preach chapter 2 with one point. And here's the point. It's one application. I'll give you to it at the beginning. God is working. Even though... It don't look like God is working. That's the point. That's really the whole point of the book of Esther. God is working even though you can't see it. Let me say it another way. God is working in your life even though you can't see it. So uh, I'm going to give you some history. Then we're going to skim over chapter 1. You can mark some things in your Bible. And then we're going to look at chapter 2 a little more in depth. And then we'll apply it. Give you some brief history. The king mentioned here, the king of Persia, is in verse 1 of chapter 1, is King Ahasuerus. Uh, it's translated Xerxes in the Greek, and that's probably more familiar to you, King Xerxes. Uh, the time of the book of Esther would have been about 483 to 473 BC, uh, and it would have been after the 70 years' captivity in Babylon. And so after the Babylonian captivity, if you remember, I, I was praying about pre preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah, but go with Esther first. But during Ezra and Nehemiah, some of the people start coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. 
But Esther would have been those people who remained in Persia, and stood, so they're still there in a foreign land uh, after the 70-year captivity. Both books, Esther and Exodus in the Old Testament, uh, tells a story about how the devil used other countries to try to wipe out the whole Jewish race. But then both of these books also tell us how God, by his sovereign power, protects the Jews, keeping his promise that he made to Abraham, that through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Let's look at chapter 1 real quick, if you'll look at verse 1. In the days of Azarias, who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, and so he ruled over 127 different territories or provinces all the way from India, which would be on the right side of the map, over to Ethiopia, which would be over on the African side of the map. It's a long way. And he ruled there. Verse 2, in, in the days when he ruled, he sat on the throne there in Shusan, and that was where the palace was. That's where, what the word citadel means. In the third, verse 3, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants. And so, stop there, that means it included everybody. From the highest ranking people of those 127 provinces down to the slaves and the servants of those different countries. He says the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. So he planned this feast, verse 4, and there he showed the riches of his kingdom, the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, for 180 days. So he brings all these people together to meet there around the palace in Shushan, verse 2. And for 180 days, verse 4, that's how long this feast is going to last. And look what it says in verse 4 they're doing. He's showing them his excellence, his majesty for all these days. So he's kind of like parading how in front of them how wealthy he is, how great he is, how much he has. Uh, think about how long 180 days is. That's six months. For six months, they've all gathered to this feast, and he's just arrogantly showing them how great things are. Uh, verse 6 through 9 shows us, or, or look at verse 5 first. There's a seven-day, underline the word seven-day. At the end of this six months, he has a feast lasting seven days in front of the capital in front of the castle and he's going to have all the people great and small there in front of the palace and verse 6 through 9 shows us the extravagance of what is going to be displayed there were verse 6 there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords with fine linen and purple and silver cords and marble pillars the couches were made of gold and silver there was Mosaic pavement of alabaster and turquoise and white and black marble. So even the, the ground they're walking on is made out of marble, different colors. Verse 7, they serve drinks and golden vessels or, or cups made out of gold, and each vessel was different. And so none of their cups matched. Everyone had a different characteristic. They were made differently from the others, and they had royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. Verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. 
Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Azarias. And so did this picture out there, out in the yard, in the garden, in front of the palace, is the king, and he has all the men. And he's done this display of his wealth, and now they're serving alcohol and golden cups and walking on the marble pavement and sitting on golden couches. And he's making this great display out there in the garden, in, the garden, in front of the palace. And now we're introduced in verse 9 to Queen Vashti, and his queen is inside the palace, and she's got all the women, from the highest-ranking women to the lowest of servants. All of them are there inside the palace, and she's serving them and giving them a feast as well. Verse 10. On the seventh day of this feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, let me give you another word for that, drunk. <laughs> when he was drunk, he commanded... And it's giving you a bunch of different names here of his seven eunuchs. I'm not going to try to pronounce all those. Who served in the presence of the king. He commanded, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. And so he says, hold on, time out. We're all enjoying the party. It's the last day. Go and get Queen Vashti. Notice he says in verse 11, have her wear her royal crown and come out and show us how beautiful she is. And so he showed you all the stuff he has. Now he wants to show you his queen and show you how beautiful she is. But look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. And therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. So the queen said, I'm not going to come out there and show my beauty. I'm not going to do that. And then uh, what happens in the course of this time is this is where Esther comes to life. And so Queen Vashti is removed as queen because she didn't obey the king and come show her beauty. And now here comes Esther on the scene, and she's going to be brought to life in chapter 2. Uh, let's look at two more things about the queen being replaced. Look at verse 16. One of his eunuchs, Mimikin, answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. And then look at verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the law of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Azarias, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she is. And so they make this law now. That Queen Vashti, she's out. She didn't do what the king said. And now we're going to go find a new king, it says in verse 19, who's even better. A better queen, a better woman. And now let's move to, to chapter 2. If you would. Uh, this is where your notes pick up if you have. So the first thing we're going to have in chapter 2 is an introduction to Esther and her family in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. In Shushan, the citadel, where there was a certain Jew named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. The, the key thing to, to mark here in your Bible is that Mordecai is a Benjamite. That's going to come up later in about three messages. That's going to be an important feature. 
Verse 6. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jokanah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Bedlam, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hedasai, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So here's what we've learned from that. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther. And Mordecai, in verse 7, says he's going to raise her as his own daughter. So he's her cousin, and he's going to take her into his home because her parents have died, and he's going to raise her as his own daughter. Esther, it tells us in verse 7, her original name, or her Jewish name, was Hadassah, which means myrtle. Her Persian name would be Esther, which means star. It tells us also that her father and mother died very young. It tells us in verse 7 that she was lovely and beautiful. Literally, what that would translate to be is beautiful in form and lovely to look at. And so now Mordecai is going to be raising her as her father. Look at verse 8. We see where Esther is brought to the king's court. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and many young woman, women were gathered at Shushan to the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So here's Esther. Now she's forced to come to the palace, and she's brought into this custody of this one eunuch who's one of the uh, one of the officials of the king, King Xerxes, and he's going to take all these women into custody and prepare them for the king. And it says in, in verse 8 that when she came into Haggai's presence, that she was taken as a virgin and she found his favor early on. Look back at verse 3 and 4. It tells us about Haggai. And let the king appoint officers in all the providences of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. And so they're going to gather all these virgins together and begin to make them even prettier is what they're doing. Verse 4. Then let the young women who please the king be queen, and the young woman who pleases the king be queen, instead of Vashti. And this thing pleased the king, and he did so. So it says in verse 9 that she found favor immediately with Haggai. And so here, look what he's going to do for her because she found favor with him. It's three things in verse 9. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her. So she finds favor with him. Her godly character is shining through not just her beauty. And he's going to make beauty preparations. In some versions it would say above her allowance. Above what the other women got. She's going to get extra beautification if you would. Extra beauty treatments. The second thing he's going to do for her. He says in verse 9. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. So she's going to get seven women from the king who's also going to follow her around and help beautify her. And then the third thing he's going to do in verse 9, he moved her and her maidservants to the best place 
in the house of the women. So all these three things are done for uh, Esther immediately because she finds the favor of Haggai, who's, the, who's really just the official who's over all these, these ladies. It is obvious that more than her beauty had to be the reason for this. In the Bible, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. In Scripture, it often elevates people who are honest and people who are virtuous with, with God lifting them up. It's almost like God says this, When I find favor with you, I will cause men to find favor with you. Sometimes he says it in the opposite way. He says, I'll even give you peace with your enemies. You ever read things like that? He says, I'll even make you at peace with those who come, have come against you and, and, and tried to harm you. And so here with Esther getting this elevation so early on, she hasn't even met the king yet. It's obvious that it's more than her beauty that is being seen here. It has to be much more than that. So... We look now at verse 10 and 11. One of the things I want you to see is that Esther does what her father told her. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. In other words, she didn't tell them that she was Jewish. And every day, Mordecai faced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So even though Mordecai was her cousin, he took her in as as her child, and he became a father to her, and he told her one thing as she goes to live at the palace where the king is. I mean, imagine this as a dad. You know, your young daughter is now being moved into the king's palace as, as one of those concubines of his, if you will. And Mordecai told her one thing. He said, don't tell him you're Jewish. That's what he told him not to be. Uh, just a little side parenting note here for all those of you who are parents. Uh, Sometimes when you're training your children, you need to work on only one thing, not ten things. And that's hard to do, isn't it? Like, you've got five things they just did wrong, and you could say, you could spend an hour and a half teaching over those five things, but sometimes it's good just to focus on one thing. And I would say, especially as they get older, as they get older and, and getting closer and closer to adulthood and even into adulthood, it's like they can't more than one thing. You know what they'll do? They will tune you out, baby. <laughs> they will turn that knob and turn your voice off. And they're sitting there and they're looking at you, but they are not hearing a word you're saying because you lost them after the first thing you were teaching them. You know that God did this with Adam and Eve? Didn't he? He, he gave them everything and he said, there's one thing I don't want you to do. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's like they can only handle one thing, uh, Cindy and I often encourage you, each other in this kind of council. We'd be like, we, we gave them too much. We, we should have held back. We, only, we need to pick the biggest thing we care about, the most important thing that needs to be taught, and we need to focus on that, get it said, get it done, a few words as possible, and get out. That's what you need to do. Because it's kind of like that's all they can handle. That's all they can digest, all they can take. And so that's what Mordecai did. And guess what Esther did? She did what her father told her. She did not reveal her Jewish heritage. And if you know the whole story, which we haven't read yet, you can go, hopefully go on this week and read it. If she had have told the whole thing, the, the one thing that Mordecai told her not to, 
it would have ruined God's plan. It would have ruined what God was doing here in the book of Esther. So Esther did what her father told her. The next thing we see is that she is being prepared to meet the king in verses 12 through 14. It talks about their beautification. It says, Each woman's turn came to go into King Azarias after she had completed 12 months of preparation. So they're beautifying these girls, and they're taking a year to do it. I mean, you talk about getting dressed and ready for a wedding. You know, I know the, the women start early that morning, I've been told. I've never been part of that. And, and they come out all beautiful. But imagine 12 months beautification. Look what it says in verse 12. According to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Verse 13. Thus prepared... Each woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters of the king's palace. In the evening she went in, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. So she's making this year-long beautification, preparation. Persia was known in this time for being famous for their perfumes and their soaps and their customs for preparing their brides. This would have included baths and fine soaps and perfumes and plucking eyebrows and painting hands and feet and face, makeup and stuff. I don't even know what all that stuff is. And so there was this year's preparation to even get to go in to see the king. And then in verse 15 through 18, Esther becomes the queen. Look at it, verse 15. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, to the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. You might want to underline that. Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Azarias into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Can you imagine that? All the young girls. Can you imagine that? He chooses you to be the queen out of all these. We'll read later, historians will say that it was 400 women. That out of, she was chosen out of 400. Puts the crown on her head and he declares her the queen. Queen of all of Persia. Look at verse 18. Then the king made a great feast. Here's what he does in response after he makes her queen. It's three things. First of all, he makes a great feast. He names the feast the Feast of Esther. And so he's going to now have a, a festival, a feast for everybody, the greatest and highest of officials down to the lowest of servants. And it's going to be declared as the Feast of Esther. Esther. That's number one. Number two, 
for all his officials and servants, he proclaimed this as a holiday in all the providences. So not only does he have a feast for her, from now on, this is going to be a holiday. There's a holiday in honor of this queen. And then the third thing, and he gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. And so he gives gifts to everybody. According to the generosity of the king means these were no small gifts. These were large gifts. The original language reads to say that he did not charge taxes in that time. So he made a holiday where we take no taxes, and the king gives everybody gifts in honor of Queen Esther. Let me give you a verse. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge who puts down one and exalts another. And that's what God did with Queen Esther. He took Queen Vashti and removed her, and he brought Queen Esther in and exalted her. Here's the application. God is always at work even when you don't think he is. I want you to think about your own life. And in your own life, the, the season you're in right now, maybe it's a season of suffering, maybe it's a season of blessing, maybe things are just kind of okay, maybe you feel a little hard and distant from God now, maybe you feel really soft and nearer to God and you're really fervent in your prayer life and you're studying the Word. Wherever you are, what the devil wants you to think is that God's, God's favor is not upon your life and God's work is not happening in your life. But the point of Esther is, even when you don't think God's working in your life, whether you're young or old, rich or poor, whoever you are, God Almighty is working in your life even now. And, and we see this throughout Scripture. We see God respond when... when he needs to respond. We see God respond when things are really out of control or really dangerous. And we see God uh, respond with miracles in the, in the miraculous, you could say. Things like parting the Red Sea. You know, that's miraculous. God needs to show up. God shows up and parts the Red Sea. Things like the ten plagues in Exodus. God needs to set them free. God shows up and causes ten mighty, miraculous Plagues, things like when David was there and, and David kills a giant. You know, this is a huge, uh, uh, pivotal moment, a mark where God showed up and did the miraculous, the thing that you could hang your hat on and say, Wow, God is for us. God is working here. Do you remember when David killed the giant? I mean, it gives us this huge, miraculous display. And often we as Christians want that kind of thing in our life. We have this pivotal moment where we say, God, this is my time. I need you to show up for me. I need that miracle that I've read about in Scripture. I need that mighty thing that I've seen you do so many times in Scripture. And you will not only ask God for it, you will believe God for it. You'll say, God, show up right here. Do that mighty work. Show your mighty power. Stretch out your mighty strong right arm and do this in my life. And for most of us, when we call on God for that and even believe God for that, guess what? We don't get the miracle we ask for. You don't get that miraculous response that you long for, prayed for, and even believe God for. And so then you start to say, well, 
the devil starts to whisper in your ear, then, you know, God don't care. God don't love you. God don't show up for you. God's not working in your life. But what we learn from Esther, there's no big miracle in the book of Esther. It's simple things. It's ordinary things that God uses to bring about in his sovereignty his plan. He does things orderly. Even, even some wicked things happen that brings about the plan of God. And if you can see that line of things that are happening. The king gets drunk. Queen Vashti disobeys. Esther is born beautiful. <laughs> Esther is not only beautiful, she must have wisdom and, the, and, and a great personality and, and something else that causes people to favor her and delight in her. That's said over and over. It's not just the king, it's other people as well. God is working in ordinary ways through the life of Esther and through this king to save the Jews, to save this race from being wiped out. And he doesn't do it with some great supernatural miracle that you could hang your head on. He does it through ordinarily, ordinary daily occurrences that through the course of a great span of time, accomplishes exactly what God wanted to accomplish. And most of the time, that's the way it's going to work in your life, too. When God works in a mighty way, we know it. When God works in ordinary ways, not only do we not, do we not know it, we don't even think he's there, and we don't even think he knows what's going on, and we don't even think he cares. But in his sovereignty, you must Place your faith in this. In his sovereignty, he is doing exactly what he wants to do. Let me just give you some, some bullets to, to, to further apply this thing that God is working. Are you aware that God's work is happening in your life right now? Think about that. Are you aware God's work is happening in your life right now? His silence does not mean he has not heard you. His seemingly not showing up does not mean he's not there. And his lack of help that you urgently need does not mean he's turned back on you. He hears you. He sees you. He knows what you need. He cares. And most importantly, he is working. He is working. You may not get a miraculous display, but in the ordinary details of your life, the daily deeds of your life, Almighty, Sovereign God is working. Amen. And God can use even evil men to accomplish what He wants. He can use even evil men to accomplish what He wants. Evil men cannot mess up the plan of God. No matter what they may do or have done to you, God's plan will stand. We know that God can take evil men's schemes and use it for his good by his sovereignty. The illustration of that is Joseph. He can take evil men's schemes and use it for his good by his sovereignty. And we see that in Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
And here comes Joseph. He's the ruler of all the food in all of Egypt. And he is able to save his whole family. Not only can God work against evil men's schemes, he can take the devil's evil schemes, the devil himself, and use it for good. The illustration of that is Jesus, of course. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, the devil thought he had won. It is done. And when Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross, you must know the devil celebrated thinking he had the greatest victory. But God knew he had the greatest defeat. I used to have a shirt years ago. I, I wore it out. I don't even know what happened to it. It got so threadbare. It had a big cross on the front of it. And it had Jesus holding the cross like this. And it says, Jesus beat the devil to death with a stick. <laughs> and that's what he did. The thing that the devil thought he did to Jesus, Jesus turned and used to destroy even the devil. If you've gone through hurt and through pain, you got to know that God brings life through that. If you've gone through darkness and through evil things, God brings light from that. Through loss and destruction, God rebuilds and restores. We speak to you just a minute about God's timing. For God to do these things through ordinary means and God to work through ordinary means, you must know it takes years sometimes. Sometimes it takes a generation or more for God's plan to show up. Sometimes for you to see how God has worked in that situation, you may only ever see it in hindsight. You may only ever see it when you look backwards from years ahead. And you look backwards and say, oh, now I see what you were doing. I was worried so much back there, Lord, you weren't working. And now I can look backwards and see what you were doing. What seems hopeless to you today, what seems hopeless to you today may in the future prove to be the very thing God was using to accomplish his plan. And so the timing of God to us seems very slow, doesn't it? It seems like we're waiting. By our estimation, it is so slow. But by God's sovereignty, his timing, you got to know this, this is a faith issue. It is perfect. It is perfect. And so, I just want to close in this point with one final point. It is foolish to groan over last week's pain. You just compare this to Queen Esther, if I can call her queen now. She's queen now. She was born in Jewish exile. That's, that's tough, to be born into slavery. Both of her parents died when she was young. That's hard on a young person. She was raised by her cousin. I don't know any of my cousins. I wouldn't be my father, but she was raised by her cousin. He became a father to her in a foreign land, not her homeland. Then she was forcefully taken into the king's harem. And after all that, she found favor with the king. Crown is placed on her head. She becomes queen, and at the end of the book of Esther, she saves the Jewish race. Now, don't be foolish and groan over last week's pain. In other words, Esther could have gone on for the rest of her life and said, my parents died just sad. Her parents died. Do you notice in all those places when she would meet those people, it said that she found favor with them when they met her. 
would tell you for somebody to find favor with you when you met them, you're not a whiny, complaining, criticizing person over what happened the day before. She wasn't going in there saying, my parents died. I was born, uh, I was born into exile. My cousin is my daddy. <laughs> she wasn't doing all of that. Or they wouldn't have found favor with her. Some of you have experienced this in a job. You know, you have a really bad job. And then you get a new job, and the new job is great. And you can you can literally ruin the new job if at the new job all you do is complain about the old job. You wouldn't. Recently, we've had an upswing in the trouble with our hot water heater at our house. Like, in other words, we don't have any some days, and some days we do. Now, on the days when we don't, my prayer life goes way up. I'm saying, Lord, help me fix this day. And on the days when we do, I'm praising God. Like, I'm so thankful. Hot water is a beautiful thing. I said, Lord, it's glorious to have hot water. How wonderful it is. But I'm not whining over last week when I didn't have hot water. You know what? I forgot about last week because I'm so thankful for this week that I do have hot water. Praise God. The same thing is true about sickness. You can you can get the flu. Some of you already how many of you already went through some sickness this winter? A bunch of you have, I believe. Alright. Now that you're healthy, are you thankful for your health? Are you still whining over the flu that you just went through and how bad it was back then? You gotta move I've known a few people in my life who have something really tragic happen to them. I've known one man in my life who had something really tragic go, go down in his 20s. I know him today. He's, he's probably in his late 50s, early 60s. He's a little bit older than me. And every time I've seen him or talked to him since, he is in misery. He's so sad. He's so beat down. He's so disappointed because of what happened in his life. 20, 30 years ago. But there have been great things happening since. But he can't see it because he's stuck on what happened a long time ago. God is working even in your ordinary life. Even if you've suffered, even if you've gone through pain, even in that, God was working, accomplishing his sovereign plan. So as we go through the book of Esther, I want you to ask God that you would believe God, that you would do what's right, that you know to be right, that you've been taught, that you would stop sitting and believe this. God has a plan for me, and he's doing that plan right now. Whether I think he is or whether I don't think he is, he's still working. You don't even have to believe him for him to work. Did you know that? He's still working, whether you know it or not. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you work in spite of us, that you work through the power of Jesus. Lord, we put our confidence in you today that you're working in our life. Thank you, Lord, that you're working in my life, that you're doing things that I need done, that you're moving me in ways I need to be moved. You're shaping my character in ways that it needs to be shaped. You're training me in, in ways that I need to be trained. And Lord, you're even helping me to realize the vanity of some sin and, and lay down sin. You're helping me to realize even the preciousness of your word and how to delight on it day and night. You're teaching me to, to know the, the, the power that's in prayer and to pray more than ever. You're teaching me the 
power that there is at the at the gospel and in the move of Jesus in somebody's life. And Lord, I pray you'd continue to work the way that you're working. I pray, Father, for that one here today, today who least knows the evidence of the working of God. Let, let them see this week, even in the minute details of their life, that you were working, that you were in charge, and that you know exactly what you're doing. Father, we praise you. 